Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for being with us uh, today. Um, We start today's show with what I think is sort of a genuine political mystery story. Um, We're going to talk about it with our panel. And in a pre-show conversation, just about everyone who's participating today said they don't have an answer to this particular mystery, but will certainly uh, try to figure out what's going on and how it may affect many people across the state of Georgia. I'm talking about the fact that Governor Kemp, late last week, um, in addition to the fact that he vetoed some $30 million in projects that had been approved for the state budget, um, that wasn't terribly surprising. But at the end of the week, he also told state agencies that they should ignore some 130 budget line items representing well over $200 million. And we're going to talk about what those items are, the big ones. And we're going to try to figure out what exactly is going on when a governor uh, says that agencies should not spend money approved by the legislature for the fiscal year budget and then signed into law uh, by the governor himself. Uh, So to do that and talk about other topics in the news, we turn to my Monday partner from the AJC, Patricia Murphy, the political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read Patricia's work in The Jolt every day. She puts that uh, uh, really wonderful summary of the news together along with her partners, Greg Bluestein and Tia Mitchell. You can get that at AJC.com. Her column, The Political Insider, runs in Wednesday's and Sunday's newspaper. And Patricia, also a political reporter for the paper. Hi, Patricia. Glad to have you with us. Hi, thank you. Great to be with you and great to be with this panel. Looking forward to your solving this mystery for us. Um, (laughs) Raul Bali is with us. He's a politics reporter at WABE Radio and follows the activities of the state legislature, uh, as well as city politics very closely. Raul, thank you for being here today. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back, Bill. Thank you very much. I did take a few days off. Uh, We ran a couple of shows that we'd recorded uh, ahead of time while I was off. But thank you, Raul, for mentioning that. Um, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is with us, Democratic representative. The heart of her district is Decatur. Mary Margaret, how are you? Good morning. I'm back from vacation, too. I've had a lovely week off. Uh, Well, that's wonderful. Good for you. Um, And Leo Smith. Uh, who is uh, the president of Engaged Futures, a government relations firm, but also a longtime uh, operative in Republican politics in this state. Um, Leo, thank you for being with us on the show today. Great to be here. I just came back from Republican land down in Albany, where Westminster's girls track team repeated their state championship, and my daughter won three events as state champion. Oh my gosh, Leo, congratulations. <laughs> wow. That is really, I'm really glad you told us that. That's What were the events? Run them down very quickly. She's a 300 hurdles, 100 hurdles, and long jump state champion. Wow. Wow. Well, I have to say we've known for a number of years, ever since you first started coming on this show, that your kids were in fact track stars, uh, and they have been for quite some time, and now we know uh, just how uh, uh, powerful their performances are. So congratulations uh, uh, to you on that, Leo. All right, Patricia, let's get down to this strange situation in which Governor Kemp uh, has now told state agencies there's more than $200 million in funding in the budget that he wants them to essentially disregard, to ignore. And, and I think it's important 
to talk about what some of that money is. First of all, the, I think I'm right in saying that the single biggest chunk of it is more than $24 million that was earmarked for mental health crisis centers in several cities in the state. There were smaller uh, line items as well, though, free school meals for uh, uh, children who qualify, uh, retiree raises, state employee retiree uh, raises, uh, money for, um, I think, mental health workers. So, Patricia, start us off on this conversation. What exactly is happening here? Well, I think you summed it up by saying nobody knows exactly what is happening um, because uh, the governor and the governor's office has not been explicit in their reasoning behind um, every one of these cuts. Um, we do have a budget situation that uh, Kemp and appropriators have been warning would be getting tighter and tighter. Um, and in April, we saw a drop in tax collections for the state uh, by about 16%, which I think was uh, eye-popping even for people who knew it was going to fall. So I think that that environment is existing and we have been warned about it for the last year and a half that this was coming. Um, however, uh, these were not the conversations going on during the legislative session to the point that there were warnings to say, no, no, you better don't even think about making these additions. Don't think about expanding these budgets. Those conversations often do happen ahead of legislative sessions. And that really was not the message that was conveyed. So um, there was also a budget battle um, at the end of the legislative session between the governor's office um, that and House lawmakers on one side and then the Senate appropriators on the other side when there was this very large $66 million cut specifically to the university system of Georgia that did feel um, political. It felt um, it was tied up in some other issues. So that was the background going into this. And now the governor has um, unveiled these cuts um, quite steep in areas in particular that would have been recurring funding. If you look at the retirement uh, raises for uh, Georgians, that got a cut by $26 million. That would have been a recurring expense every year after that. Um, one that really caught my eye were, was the $6 million to have free breakfast and lunch uh, yeah. for Georgia public school kids. That was a huge victory, especially celebrated on the House side, um, got a major standing ovation when Matt Hatchett, the head appropriator over there, announced this and said, this is probably one of the things I'm most proud of in this entire budget. That got the axe. And in the back and forth between the governor's office um, and legislators, the lawmakers are really talking about the role of the General Assembly, talking about their effort to um, maintain their authority over the budget rather than the governor's authority over the budget, saying we respect the governor, but here's what the General Assembly does. This is our role. In fact, it's the only role that they're constitutionally mandated to enact. And so we're. this will take some time to unpack. There probably are as many reasons for these cuts as there are cuts themselves. Yeah, Mary Margaret, I think Patricia makes an important point here. Um, it's not unusual, as you well know, for legislators to negotiate with the governor over line items in a budget to say, you know, the governor says you're spending, we, we want to cut back spending, say, for, for whatever reason, free breakfasts and lunches. And the legislature says, well, all right, if you really think we need to do that, we'll move forward. I mean, this is the sort of thing that takes place in a negotiation. But for the governor to unilaterally make these decisions is quite unusual. I Can you think of a time in your long tenure at the Capitol that this has happened quite this dramatically? No. And there's a, some shock and there's some anger. Uh, the Many of us spend a lot of time on special interest projects that help people, like school lunches, that helps people. The children, the most vulnerable, the children that are the most in need that free lunch and breakfast helps people and the house commitment to that was very strong and the fact that it was in the budget it was was applauded and deeply felt as something we accomplished something in the mental health field it's devastating what the governor did the governor said at one of his bill signings 
that I was listening to clarefully that the 1013 from uh, 2022 session was the most important bill he'd ever he'd signed since governor. And then he vetoes hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever disregard means. And there's a huge amount of confusion out there about what disregard actually means. These crisis centers that we have been trying to rebuild, uh, trying to make effective for the disasters that families are experiencing across this state, uh, it's devastating what he has said. It takes the whole planning process off the page that we in these mental health uh, reform efforts have been thinking through. Eliminating the pay raise for the $10.67 per hour direct support people who are helping the disabled, dis developmentally disabled folks comply with the civil rights settlement that Georgia is under right now, is not moving fast enough to provide those community-based supports to the developmentally disabled. That careful work that was put into the budget is now a mess and all the complaining that people have might have been done about the civil rights uh, settlement and the Justice Department oversight is now, in my view, de uh, derailed. Uh, vetoing, this wasn't a disregard, vetoing the million dollar support for the match committee, which was going to be the central coordinating factor to eliminate hoteling. It, it's just, uh, it's mind boggling and people are upset. People are really upset. All right. I want to bring Raul and Leo in, but I think you need for our listeners, Mary Margaret, to just very briefly explain a couple of things you talked about here. First of all, talk about the civil rights settlement and what what that settlement was and how these so-called disregards affect that. Just give us a brief uh, uh, insight about what that is and then also what you're talking about when you talk about match. Approximately 10 years ago, the Federal Department of Justice issued a complaint in the way in which Georgia was managing, disregarding the civil rights of hospitalized, developmentally disabled Georgians across the state. And a settlement was reached about moving out 9,000 people uh, into a better system of community-based support and closing the psychiatric hospitals. That was a necessary legal conclusion, in my opinion. The settlement has been under implementation, but we have the inability to support people in the community if you're only going to pay the folks that do the direct service, the direct supervision and assistance, $10 an hour. Yeah, that's right. He has cut the uh, raise that would have gone to psychiatric workers. And talk very quickly about when you mentioned MATCH. MATCH was an element that was important to me in the House Bill 1013 to create, recreate really what had previously a coordination of the most difficult, to place the most difficult impaired, psychiatrically impaired children in the state's legal custody. These are not parent neglect cases. These are the state's children, and they are many, too many in hotels instead of adequate psychiatric facilities. All right. Thank you very much for helping us understand those items. Uh, Raul and then Leo. Let me um, give you an example of a bill and then the possible reasons behind it. House Bill 249 was vetoed by the governor. Uh, it was a bill that would expand um, a program that gave needs-based scholarships to people who were close to graduating. They'd, some level of college was done. They were close to either getting their two or four-year degree, and these were needs-based scholarships to help that. That was the original bill. Also added to the bill was free tuition for veterans who wanted to learn truck driving. That was added to the bill on the Senate side. So State Representative Chuck Martin was the sponsor of the original bill. and. You know, his conversation with me on the air was, you know, I didn't really know until the day of that my bill was going to be vetoed. It was that day he found out that there was an issue with the bill. Um, and, and he was pretty disappointed by it, by, you know, finding out at the last second. Was the issue his bill or that the part that was added, added by the Senate by State Senator Jason Anavitarte? The governor's office said, look, it wasn't funded. But the thing is, we've seen legislation in the past that wasn't funded or funded in the future, that got signed by the governor. So the question is, was this a miscommunication? Was there a specific message coming from the governor's office? 
or is this a change in the way business is being done at the state capitol that you know there's this concern about what's going on with the budget and and one and one last bit of insight i want to give folks people were wondering this is a story i did last week bill of what was one of the reasons behind this massive drop y'all remember 2 years ago in 2021 the stock market was doing great billions of dollars of capital gains were coming into the state Last year wasn't as good, and that was one of the big reasons for the drop. About a billion and a half to almost two billion of that drop came from less capital gains taxes. There are a bunch of other reasons, which which I know uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver can talk about, but that was one of the bigger reasons behind that drop. Uh, Leo? Yeah, and Raul, in mentioning the capital gains uh, change, it kind of brings a segue that I think Republicans are going to try and shift this into a, a new focus. And that is, is that the, the, the pending looming recession um, that people are worried about, the economists are predicting, you know, the interest rate, rate hikes from the Federal Reserves, banks collapsing, all this fear and doomsaying is, is, is making Biden, I mean, not Biden, um, making Governor Kemp take a second look at a budget plan, a, a budget plan that is living and that can change. And I think that's also why there's a lot of confusion um, from the appropriations chairman, Blake Tillery, uh, who replaced Terry England, an 18 year veteran on, on uh, that leadership. Uh, and where he's saying, well, I'm not so sure any of this is written in stone, that these things are absolutely no longer viable. It just means that we've got a pause and we're hearing a sort of language that doesn't make what the governor is doing final. That almost makes it sound like he's just reevaluating. Bill, one piece of context that I think is really important is that these cuts are following huge tax cuts that the legislature also approved. So $950 million this year in property tax rebates for Georgians, and then also a billion dollar tax cut. And that not tax cut, those are rebates, a one-time rebate for Georgians, $250 to $500. So you compare the $200 million or so uh, vetoes and disregards to $2 billion in tax cuts. And you see why uh, Democrats in particular were warning, no, you could do other things with that money instead of a one-time rebate. Um, now, Republicans will certainly say um, a downturn is the exact right time to be cutting taxes because that puts money back in people's pockets. But the question is, does it have to be so much one way or, or the other? And then um, also, if you're not funding your budget priorities, what happens next? Um, so Mary Margaret, it, and, and I want everybody to weigh in on this. It feels like to me there are two tracks we can pursue in looking at what happened here. One of them is the politics of all of this, the governor unilaterally making these decisions. Mm -hmm. And apparently, based on the reporting that James Salzer did in the AJC, talking with various legislators, Mary Margaret, Nobody seemed, there was no communication from the governor's office explaining all of this, nor was there communication to the public explaining all of these so-called disregards. That's one, the political track. But Mary, Margaret, there's also the human track. And I think in many ways for our listeners, that's really what matters most. When you talk about the huge effort that's been made to reform the mental health system in Georgia for a couple of sessions now, and we see unilaterally a cut of 20 plus million dollars for crisis centers, that's a human cost. The money that was earmarked to give free meals to, uh, to qualifying students in schools, that's a human cost. So there are two separate tracks here, Mary Margaret. One of them is fascinating for political junkies like us. The other is a human toll. In uh, the words of uh, Paul Newman, we have a failure to communicate. It is undisputed that there's been a failure to communicate. Uh, was that strategic or was it just inexperience? The House Chairman of Appropriations that replaced Terry England is brand new. This was his first year. And Terry England had a, a, a sophistication of 18 years of drilling down the budget that 
House members really felt confident about. Blake Tillery on the Senate side has been there replacing Jack Hill, who died three, four years ago. So he's relatively new. You have a new lieutenant governor, obviously, a new speaker, and uh, a new uh, a new person, political person, in the form of Brian Kemp. So failure to communicate is something that you can point to in almost any management debacle, and this was, in my view, a management debacle. The personalities um, are more complicated and more human and, and based on ambitions, uh, based on moving chairs. Um, Kaylee Noggle leaving the Department of Community Health, she was a person who was very respected, I think, and one of the folks in Brian Kemp's crowd that really we were had some confidence in, and, and now that's gone. Kelly Farr has not been particularly uh, popular, and the communication issue and the personality of political strategies that may be at play, it's hard to know because it's pretty confusing, but it's pretty very, very disappointing. Uh, real quick, uh, Patricia, you uh, have a statement that just came from Cody Hall, longtime advisor to Governor Kemp about all this. Can you share that with us? And then we'll get Leo and Raul back in the conversation. Yes, this is something that um, Cody Hall, who is actually an outside advisor to Kemp, not not the governor's office. So I think that's where yes. a lot of this confusion is coming from. Cody posted this to Twitter just a little while ago. The message from Brian Kemp is that, number one, our, our nation looks headed for an economic downturn thanks to Joe Biden. Number two, holes in Medicaid funding must be filled through cuts or supporting initial funding initially supposed proposed by the governor. And number three, our share goal... Our shared goal is to keep cutting the income tax. Um, so that is coming from Cody. Um, I think it also really does point to the fact, as Mary Margaret was saying, we have a lot of new leaders in the Capitol. There was a question of who would kind of dominate the, what was once a three-legged stool between the governor, the House, and the Senate. And now it certainly does feel like it's the governor um, kind of taking a time to state his priorities. By the way, uh, Leo, I'm going to turn it over to you and then to Raul, but I should uh, tell you all that Cody Hall actually is scheduled to appear on Political Rewind on Wednesday, and certainly this is something, uh, again, he is no longer in the governor's office. He's now running the uh, political operations uh, that Governor Kemp is engaged in, uh, but he'll be with us on Wednesday, and we'll certainly talk about this. Uh, Leo and then Raul. Oh, that'll be that'll be an excellent show from a primary source in Cody Hall. Look, let's not deal with the reality here. We've had a major shift in leadership that Mary Margaret has brought about and talked about. I talked about Terry England and his um his retirement from leading our budget appropriations process. And Kemp is shifting um as we look at a GOP that is rudderless as far as the political party goes. And he's asserting his leadership in ways that are in 501c4s, c3s, as well as in the executive office of uh, our capital. That means that Kemp is going to be the leader, sometimes doing things that seems to be uh, by the beat of his own drum. Cody Hall and some other leaders are very much part of that, even though they're not in the state house anymore. So uh, that's what we can expect for the future. Kemp is the leader of the Republican Party, point blank. Raul? So, you know, you talk about the human cost or the or or the cost to folks. You know, one of the things I want to be watching for tomorrow is the Board of Regents meeting and seeing if there's any effect on tuition. Um, the cut is $66 million, you know, to the teaching budget. In the grand scheme of that budget, is it massive? No, but it's still something I'm watching for. Same with what's happening with local governments. Another thing that was line itemed out was money to be given to local governments um, for data plans for their elections equipment. And the interesting thing there in the governor's, the governor's uh, disregard was that's the responsibility of local governments. So it's going to be a cost that local governments pick up. So you know, these are interesting things, whether it's, you know, tuition and students or what's happening on the local level with local governments. These are just things that I'm going to be watching for in that kind of reaction. 
All right, uh, Raul Bali, you get the last word on uh, the first segment of today's Political Rewind. We have so much more to talk about on the show today. Uh, we'll continue after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Leo Smith, Raul Bali, uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, and Patricia Murphy join us for today's edition of Political uh, rewind. Uh, Patricia, as long as we've been talking about Governor Kemp, let's talk about a story that Greg Bustein, your colleague, reported the other day. Uh, he's, he believes he is noticing a very definite shift in language among uh, Kemp and his allies as to whether Brian Kemp could be considering whether, in fact, he might become a candidate for president in 2024. What did you make of uh, seeing your colleague's uh, article. So I am not surprised. I would say there has been a subtle, very subtle shift. And let's preface by this by saying, Brian Kemp does not have a, an operation in Iowa. He is not secretly planning a trip to New Hampshire. This is not like a behind the scenes plan that's about to get sprung on the world. Um, however, we have gone from no Kemp's not running for president to I don't know, <laughs> you know, and uh, he was asked by donors at a retreat, a donor retreat in Sea Island, where there were some big names you would recognize asking, are you going to run for president? And instead of saying a flat out no, he said, well, you know, that final decision would be left up to my family, of course. Um, so I, I, it feels like a situation where he's leaving the door open because being in those conversations and being in that mix is very um, potent to lots of things. Um, he also is a natural, you know, medium lister, not short lister, but medium lister for a vice presidential nomination. And just as a second term governor, a Republican who has figured out how to win in a swing state without Donald Trump and without enraging his followers either. So that that's yeah. a really unique mix he's got. So, Leo, as a Republican on the panel, let me get you into this conversation. I think one of the things that Patricia said that's very important here is, look, there's no question that Brian Kemp is trying to establish a national profile for himself. He's uh, building an operation that will give him a national visibility. That doesn't mean he does want to run for president, as Patricia points out, but certainly by at least kind of keeping the door open, all that does is add to his importance on the national political scene, Leo. Ex yes, and that's an excellent thing for Georgians. I mean, he is the CEO of our state. Why would he, as governor, not take advantage of the leverage that he obtains when he gets more national and international influence a part of which is, will he, won't he be a factor in the 2024, in, in the presidential campaign? Uh, this is important for Georgians, for Georgia's representation. And yes, he should not close that door before it's presented to him. He should use it to benefit Georgians. And I think he's doing an excellent job. You see some of his top advisors moving outside the governor's office to keep those options, uh, to build a ghost team, so to speak, for those options as they develop. Very than Raul. I'm very interested in listening to what Cody says this week because he is the national, he's the person with the job of raising the national profile of Brian Kemp, who every weekend, as far as I can tell, is going to a national big political uh, event with a lot of super, super rich people. Uh, I'm the last person to have any intelligent thoughts on this, but it, it is my prediction that if the presidential nominee is neither Trump nor DeSantis that Brian Kemp will be the leading candidate for VP. And I think that is a strategy that is, it is good for Georgia. It is good for Georgia in some respects that Georgia is a swing state and that there, 
is a message out there that we're being competently managed. I contrast that message of competent management with the very bad back steps we took with the vetoes that he issued last week. The things that we are really have our fingers in various aspects of government of Georgia are very disappointed that the progress we were making on some budget items is taken away. And so we have a disconnect here that seems to be widening. Brian Kemp's profile and emergence as a national leader grows and our disconcert about how we're really operating the day-to-day working of government seems weakened. Raul? I think my question, and I think this is a question that, that every candidate you know, has to answer is, who is my target voter? Okay, in a Republican primary that has former President Trump, will likely have current Governor DeSantis, Ambassador Haley's in there, Mike, uh, uh, former Vice President Pence, Tim Scott. Who who is the target voter, and then what's the message to that target voter? That's what I'm wondering with a Brian Camp, or as as other members of the panel says, he's just keeping his, his profile high for whatever he does in 2026. So, Raul, uh, a couple of things to to add on to that. Um, You covered, I believe, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris's uh, most recent visit to Atlanta, which was just last week. Mm -hmm. It's her third visit this year. So let me put it in the context of what we just talked about with, is Kemp a possible candidate for president? You can understand why some Republicans would find him appealing um, because Georgia is going to be in play in 2024, we think. It, it is definitely a purple state. So now go back to Kamala Harris. How important is it really that the vice president has now been visiting Georgia with some regularity in terms of trying to keep Georgia Democrats mobilized for 2024? It is important. And, and look, you're going to see Again, you know, Bill, you've covered this a long time. We Big names did not come to this state for a long time. And now it's, uh, you know, former president, current presidents coming. It feels like all the time. I think the biggest takeaway that I took from the vice president's speech on, on Friday was I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a preview of what we're going to see on the campaign trail for the next, uh, next year and a half. Um, a lot of conversation about what has already been done by the Biden administration. She brought up the infrastructure law. She appo- uh, talked about the appointment of Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. She talked about the, the insulin cap, the cap for Medicare. And then the other kind of half of the speech was, was talking about, uh, you know, what Republicans had done on abortion and permitless carry, for example. No mentions of former President Trump and just actually no mentions of anyone in specific as a Republican. So I think that's a you're seeing what the, the argument is going to be for the rest of this year into 2024. And look, you're going to see big names coming to this state. You know, at some point you're going to see the former president come here. And at some point you're going uh, former President Trump come here to campaign. Georgia matters. It, it, we don't have to remind anybody that that this state was decided by 11,779 votes. I think I got that right. Uh, Patricia? Yeah, I agree with Rahul. Um, Georgia is hugely important, not from just a messaging standpoint, but from an electoral votes standpoint. And if you talk to Democrats or Republicans at the national level, Georgia is in the top three states with Wisconsin and uh, Michigan of you got to win them. You have to win them in order to win the White House. The Democrats might have a little more wiggle room, um, but Republicans must win Georgia in order to win the White House. And so it is just hugely, hugely important. The DNC has said that Georgia will be the first state where they'll invest when it comes to um, putting in real money to ground game and advertising. Uh, And I think Democrats are going to um, have a challenge in that they see this disconnect in their minds between what the Biden administration has done. I mean, they have pumped 
billions of dollars into Georgia. Um, but he continues to have these really low approval ratings in the states, between 36 and 40 percent consistently. So they have a lot of work to do to get to marry what they see as the credit that Biden deserves with where Georgia voters are right now, um, while the Republicans sort out their own situation. So let me go to the Democrat on the panel and then give Leo a chance as well. Mary Margaret, there's been a lot made of the fact that uh, when the White House decided to take the convention to Chicago rather than bring it to Atlanta, there to some extent that might hurt how Democrats, uh, how energized Democrats will be in this state next year. Frankly, it strikes me that that in many ways is a really minor story. In the long run, this election is going to be about how the issues that uh, Raul describes Kamala Harris talking about and others are really going to make a difference. So what does it mean that Kamala Harris keeps coming here and trying to get the positive message about the Biden administration across to voters who so far have not responded well to Biden in the polls? I agree that the DNC going to Chicago was disappointing, but more significantly is the money that will be coming to Georgia uh, to make sure that Georgia stands as a democratic state. The significance of Kamala Harris has to do with answering Raul's question, who is your target voter? And the target voter for Georgia, I believe the political science is pretty good that it's black women, number one, and a increasingly diverse, younger, more international population, second. The women in the suburbs um, are clearly part of the Kamala Harris team, black and white, because we know that the outer perimeter is a racially mixed, internationally mixed, crowd of voters that is is democratic. Those are suburbs between the inner and the outer perimeter. Kamala Harris is a effective voice for the targeted voters in Georgia in a significant way. And she will be joined by many others. You say a former president coming here, my mind went to Barack Obama. It did not go to <laughs> it did not go to uh, Trump. Michelle and Barack Obama will be coming to Georgia and the targeted voters of Democratic voters uh, will be coming out. It's It feels a little calm or a little disinterested right today, but the significance of Georgia will not be denied in the next 18 months, 24 months. You know, I let out a sort of an audible um, hat tip to Mary Margaret Oliver. Uh, that's exactly what I thought. I thought President Obama <laughs> visiting uh, Georgia because who can deal with the divorce that nobody's talking about? And you know, everybody talks about the divorce of the Republican Party within um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's idea of a national divorce, but there's a divorce happening amongst Democrats. I mean, Keisha Lance Bottoms, out, divorced from the Biden White House. Susan Rice, you know, <laughs> Obama sensei, out of the White House. Black Americans are watching Joe Biden's performance. They're watching these Black women leaving the White House leadership. Somebody's got to bring that marriage back. So the marriage vows are going to come from President Obama, Michelle Obama. And, uh, and, 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 and our VP, Kamala Harris, this is going to be the biggest job and the biggest opportunity for her in the existence of her life, to marry Black Americans back to the Democrats. All right, I've got to get to a break. Before I do, very quickly, while I get what you're saying about Susan Rice, Leo, um, Patricia, correct me if I'm wrong, when Keisha Lance Bottoms was recruited to go up and work in the White Biden White House, she said at the time this was going to be temporary. She would go up there for a, peri a limited period of time and then leave. Now, maybe the public needs to be reminded of that, and Leo could be right, but it isn't as if she's been ousted. No. In fact, she seemed pretty relieved to finally reach the end of her tenure. Yeah. She was flying back every weekend to see her son's football games Friday afternoon, Friday evening. And so she was always sort of half in, half out. Um, I think it, uh, she remains uh, an advisor to the White House informally, um, but it very much seemed to be her thought that she wanted to be back in Atlanta and not on an airplane um, twice a week. All right, let's get to our final break of the show. More in just a moment.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Quick program note, with the end of Title 42 last week, there's an enormous amount of attention clearly being focused on the um, border right now and what's happening there. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to have one of the country's top immigration attorneys, Chuck Cook, as part of our panel looking at exactly what is going on with uh, immigration and the so-called crisis at the border right now. Uh, Patricia, uh, Let's talk briefly about this Herschel Walker story that was reported, I believe, first by the Daily Beast. Um, The details are quite simple. During his campaign for Senate, Walker solicited a contribution from a man described as a Montana billionaire. His name is Dennis Washington. He was asked for a $600,000 contribution. Uh, Walker, either himself or the campaign, asked that Washington wire $535,000 of that money to a company that Walker runs, a company called HR Talent, not to the campaign. Now, when when Washington found out where that money went, he asked for a refund. He got it. But there is now a question as to whether, in fact, this is a serious violation of campaign ethics and whether Walker needs to be investigated. Uh, Talk to us a little more about this, please. Yeah, it's just highly, highly unusual for a, um, not for a candidate to solicit donations. That's not unusual. It's highly unusual to then say, and here is the wire information for my company. Um, I mean, that's not just an ethics violation, that's a legal violation. And that is something that Congressman George Santos is currently being prosecuted for for directing a campaign contribution to a private company. You cannot do that. Um, it's also not one of Walker's big companies. It's not his chicken processing company. It's the sort of out of the way company that he had doing auditions for kind of a reality show. It's just a very unusual situation. Now, the Daily Beast has uh, the text messages from Herschel Walker, so it certainly seems to be a pretty, We although we have not seen them, so we can't say at the AJC we've seen these text messages. Um, when Washington found out about it, it's not clear if he was told by the Daily Beast about it, and it was just recently returned a few weeks ago. Or if Walker's team came to him and said, oh, by the way, that was a huge mistake. So a lot more needs to be um, investigated here, I would say, before we can put this to bed. It, what's strangest of all is that Walker has a lot of money in his campaign account, still more than $4 million. Personally, we don't know what's going on with his finances. So that's um, a, a very open and very serious question. Yeah, Leo, this strikes me as a continuation of what was a questionable campaign from the very start. It it did not end well on election night for Herschel Walker. And as these revelations come out, uh, things continue to not look very good for a guy who at one point some Republicans thought was the shining light of the Georgia Republican Party. You know, Bill, I got spanked pretty badly by the Georgia Bulldog faithful as well as the Republican base for saying that Herschel Walker shouldn't run and not joining his team. Um, it's This is a gift that's going to keep hurting us, um, the Herschel Walker campaign. Uh, I think he's going to come up with an explanation uh, on that redirected money and They'll probably come up with some, you know, I thought it was paying for an invoice or something like that. Um, But here's, I want to end this on a positive note, and that is Georgians did not elect Herschel Walker. Uh, New Jerseyans (laughs) elected George Santos. Perhaps Georgia voters are smarter than New Jersey voters. New, New Yorkers, New Yorkers. New York, I'm sorry. Santos. Yes, New York, New York. And uh, maybe most people are smarter than me on uh, ge- geography. Raul, a quick comment from you on all this? I do want to hear the explanation. Um, And, 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 you know, 
that's I, I think that's the main thing is 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 what Patricia is saying is that you know we'd love to see the t- you know those text messages the Daily Beast got a hold of and, and just what the explanation. I still, you know, I do find it interesting the radio silence from Herschel Walker since Election Day, um, when we all saw him on Election Day. I was there that night. Um, you know, the, I'd like to hear hear what the explanation is. The the incompetence of the Walker campaign was staggering from the get go. Uh, the the what we read in the paper about the discommunication, the wife taking over, the lack of trust, uh, the bizarreness of his presentation. So this is not surprising to me. It is it feels like just a continuation of total incompetence and uh, reflecting again that I think the real leaders of the Republican Party, whoever they might be willing to set forward is the candidate choice matters and the Republican choice of candidates has been very, very uh, damaging to the Republican brand. All right, Mary, Mary Margaret, thank you uh, for that. Uh, Patricia, before we run out of time, uh, you wrote a really powerful piece, I think, this past week about the Donald Trump uh, town meeting on CNN. There are a couple of weight directions we can take this conversation. First, just very briefly, I'd like you to uh, uh, t- tell us whether you believe that, in fact, Donald Trump, in talking about the perfect phone call he had with Brad Raffensperger in the town meeting and other things he said, might have given Fonnie Willis more fodder as she looks at whether she will, in fact, uh, uh, issue a criminal indictment against him. That, that's part of the question. Then the larger question is, what was CNN doing in bringing together an audience of people who are completely in the Trump camp? And what did that reveal about them? Patricia? Yeah, so on the first question, it it did kind of sound like Donald Trump confessed to multiple crimes that he's being investigated (laughs) for during that town hall, saying, well, Brad Ravensburger owed me votes. And... um, Mike Pence did something wrong when he didn't flip the legislators back to the states. Um, He went a lot into his mindset and intent with all of those instances that prosecutors have always had a hard time making assumptions on. So there's the legal piece of it. We heard from lawyers who said, wow, when do you ever get so lucky to have your potential uh, defendant just confessing during a town hall. Um, On the second piece, no, I would not have structured that CNN town hall that way. Um, I think it put Caitlin Collins in a really impossible position. Um, However, I found it very instructive and I hope that other people watched it carefully as well. Um, The biggest laugh lines and the biggest applause lines that Trump was getting support for in that audience were for um, making fun of being accused of rape, making fun of the woman who uh, was who our jury just agreed with in New York, um, laughing about uh, January 6th, saying, I hope you're all on Truth Social. That's where I was posting my messages that day. This group of people, it, they don't love him despite these pieces of his personality. It's because of it. There is nothing he will say or do or lie about that will change that. And this is a devoted group of followers that no other Republican has. Which really, Raul, is one of the things I think made that town meeting so fascinating. We did see how powerful Trump's support really is no matter what uh, uh, happens in all of these prosecutions that he potentially faces. Um, But the other thing, Raul, is it, it strikes me, and I'd love your take, you're, you're the other journalist on this panel, um, CNN is taking a lot of criticism for giving him a forum. But in fact, didn't we, didn't we in fact get a sense and a reminder of just how dangerous Donald Trump is in, in a setting like that? And I think that's why it's going to be important to see what news organizations do with long form interviews and town halls from now until, you know, as long as he's the nominee or, or is on track to be the nominee, that's why it's going to be. I, as much as you've seen the fallout from what happened with the CNN interview, 
I think it's going to be even more instructive and more important to see how all news organizations, whether they're, um, in, you know, Fox News, CNN, or a local television station, because, you know, he's going to start doing those local sit downs in Iowa, South Carolina. Uh, you know, Georgia's still in play when March 12th rolls around. You know, what does Channel 2, 5, and 11 do if, if there's a long form interview? That's, that is almost as important as what happened with CNN. Uh, we're, we're not out of time, but very quickly, Leo, uh, those long-form interviews, if they're on tape, can be edited, and that's an important aspect of this. They're not live. Leo and then Mary Margaret, I want to get you both in before we uh, don't have any time left. Well, look, I mean, journalism's impact on democracy is irrefutable, and there's a responsibility that we're going to have to continue to debate uh, and discuss on what's the proper play for journalism. CNN uh, is in it for the ratings, not quite as much as Fox, I don't think I'll agree. Uh, Fox is called the Entertainment News Network, but CNN wants ratings too, and they have, uh, they, they're showing those colors, but we, the citizen, have to decide um, whether or not we're willing to get news that's behind the paywall in front of us and whether or not we want shows or do we want to actually learn about people's uh, capacity to lead us. Mary Margaret? We, we the citizens have to pay attention and those of us that are not in the whether it's 15 percent or 20 percent of the quote base understand and have to act upon the understanding that Donald Trump is a very dangerous person and does injury every single day. That's all the time we have for today. Mary Margaret Oliver gets the last word. Thank you, Mary Margaret, for being with us. Leo Smith, Raul Bali, Patricia Murphy. Thanks for starting our week off with such a great conversation. Back with more tomorrow on our show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy. Please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.